Welcome to We Are Arkansas. We have conversations that show how in Arkansas we really are more alike than we're different. Uh, this is the Reverend Stephen Copley, and I'm the host of the show. And we're very honored today to have Sophia Saeed um, as our guest. Sophia, welcome. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for taking the time and, and coming. Sophia has a, a, a very good story, and this morning we're going to talk about uh, Sophia's tradition, which is uh, Islam. And Sophia, I know you, you, you grew up in Pakistan. Can you just tell me a little bit about your faith journey and what that's entailed over the years? Yes, sure. I was born and raised in Pakistan. And I came to America for higher education almost 22 years ago. And uh, I got married. I have two wonderful children who are born and raised in America. And we traveled throughout the States um, in the last 23 years as my husband got his education, his master's, his PhD. As I got my education, my bachelor's, my master's. And just had a great time enjoying American life and opportunities. Um, my my spiritual journey took a big turn after the attacks of September 11. I used to not very interested in exploring my own faith identity, but things changed after 9/11 because people started asking asking me questions, and I had no idea what the answers were. Why am I Muslim? Why I do what I do? So I started reading a lot and uh, trying to understand my faith, uh, exploring things which I've never explored before. I became a lot spiritual. And with time, I realized that, you know, I do want people to know who I am, my religious identity, my faith identity. And uh, I want them to understand why am I Muslim and what the Islamic teachings are, which is very different from what we generally see portrayed on TV and media. So as I became more religious, I, of course, started teaching in the mosque. I started, uh, I changed my attire. Uh, I never used to cover myself up the way I cover myself now. So I started wearing a hijab, which is a headdress that a lot of Muslim women wear. And a lot of Muslim women do not wear that. And that's okay, too. So I chose Muslim identity as a visible and visual way to express myself. And then as my children grew up and they went through schools in America, especially middle and high school, during the last seven, eight years, they faced many challenges, which I never expected them to face because I never faced any challenges in America pre-9-11 world. So they had to, um, of course, face the issue of Islamophobia, people calling them names, which actually was another turn in my life. At that time, it was not only about me and my spiritual journey. It was also about um, educating the community that I'm living in, raising awareness about Islam so my children are understood too, not only me. So they live in a community where people know who they are and they're not judged just based on their faith. So I started a lot more interfaith work in our community, which is here in Arkansas. And... Um, that's where I am today. I know it's part of that, and, I, and I, from what I hear, it's, it's the work you're doing is part of your spiritual journey. I know one thing that you did, you're a graduate of the Clinton School, and, and coming out of that, you uh, created the Interfaith Youth Group as a way of uh, 
uh, showing and educating young people about people of different traditions as they interact. Do you want to tell us some more about the youth group? Yes, I would love to. So that happened uh, when my both my children, I have a boy and a girl, and they were both in middle school. Uh, my daughter was a sixth grader, and my son was an eighth grader. And one day on our dinner table conversation, um, my daughter told me that how somebody called uh, my son um, a word that I never wanted to hear about my son or anybody would want to hear about their child, that he was um, called a terrorist, and then he was told that uh, the God that Muslims believed in uh, is a mean God, and he tells you to kill others. And that really upset me. So, of course, I asked my son that, um, honey, how did you handle it? But he didn't say much. He said, no, there is no need to handle it, Mom. That's what people believe about Muslims nowadays. So my daughter responded to me instead of my son, and she told me that, Mom, don't worry. I handled it pretty well. I took care of it. And I asked her, what did you do, honey? And she said, you know, the child who attacked my brother, he was a Hindu. And when he told my brother that your God is very mean, I told him right back that your God is very cheap and you can just buy it off the store shelf for $10. So, <laughs> and she was very proud of herself. And that night on dinner table, I looked at both my children and I was thinking, they, no they both do not have the communication tools that they need in order to help understand their own religion and in order to help understand the religion of other kids, to talk to them, to have a dialogue with them. So I decided that, you know, the teenagers in our community need to have better communication skills. We are living in a very inclusive world. We cannot avoid meeting Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist children. So we need to be better equipped to be able to talk to them to understand them, to respect them, to cherish the differences that we have, and of course, to respect the commonalities that we have. So I thought about starting this um, youth group, which is called Multi-Faith Youth Group of Arkansas, uh, for based on this experience that my children have, in which high school children from multiple faiths, they come together, they meet every other week to have interfaith dialogue with each other, they talk about world issues, personal issues, religious issues, in presence of facilitators and coordinators who can guide them through those discussions and teach them how to talk. And then they also meet every other week to do community service projects. So that group was started with your help, Steve, almost six years ago. We take students in ninth grade from all different faiths and all around the state, and then we graduate them in 12th grade. And it's had a remarkable impact, and uh, and it's also led. Um, and and you're the executive director at the Interfaith Center. It's also led you to do some work with children. And I know um, every summer you have a week long camp with children um, around interfaith uh, understanding and dialogue. Would you share just a bit about that as well? So the summer camp is for um, elementary school children and it's called Friendship Camp. And the idea is very simple. We want children from different faiths to come together and become friends, learn how to become friends, and that's it. So we started that three years ago with 30 children. Now we take 50 children every year. So it's a week-long camp in which Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Baha'i, 
atheists and spiritual seekers, they all, all these children come together for a week full of fun activities like uh, meditation, music, art, sports, team building, cooking, science. But among all these activities and while having fun, they also learn about each other's faiths. They learn how to celebrate each other's faiths. And then they also learn about their own faith. So that is a week which is very important and integral in the life of these children who meet once a, uh, once a year. And also the families, because we're all learning how we can create an inclusive community in which we do not have to hide our faiths. We can actually come out and cherish our faiths. So that's what Friendship Camp is about. Well, that's that's exciting because what I heard earlier, you know, that's arisen out of your your spiritual journey and out of your faith journey and I it's it's really exciting to uh, to to watch be part of and see how that has uh, has an impact you mentioned that in the uh, in that in your journey you wanted to um, to engage more with uh, with the teachings and help under people understand more about the teachings can uh, what are some of the basic tenets and writings of Islam Oh, that's um, a semester-long course. I was going to say, it's the million-dollar <laughs> question, isn't it? But, and, and like most so, traditions, most, mm. whether Christian or Jewish, there's lots of different yes. interpretations um. and understandings, but some of the basics. So Islam, like Christianity and Judaism, um, in Islam, Muslims also believe on a wide or a broad uh, range. They're very conservative Muslims, and then they're very moderate Muslims, and they're very liberal Muslims as well. But generally, there are some teachings which are the core teachings of Islam, and all Muslims believe in them. And I would highlight the two things which actually every Muslim adhere to, and one of them is our belief system. There are six things that we believe in, and which we call uh, the tenets of our faith. So we believe in one God, and we use the word Allah for God. And Allah is an Arabic word, which means the God or the supreme God. Then we believe in the prophets, the prophets who has come through centuries to guide human beings and uh, prophets like Adam and Noah and Moses and David and Abraham and Jesus, peace be upon them all. So we do believe in all the prophets that Jews and Christians believe in, with Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, being the last prophet. And then we believe in angels who bring the, who bring the divine guidance to um, the prophets. Then the holy books and scriptures that were sent to those prophets. So we do believe that Old Testament and New Testament were sent by the divine God to the prophets. And then we believe in the day of judgment and that all the decree and knowledge comes from God, one God. And we believe in life after death. So these are the basic tenets of Islamic belief system that every Muslim does believe in. And then there is a lot more detail to them, but we do stick to that belief. And then there are some certain practices which Muslims do, and we call them five pillars of Islam. And first pillar being um, a statement or a declaration of faith. Whenever somebody becomes Muslim, they openly declare that they believe in one God and Prophet Muhammad being the last messenger. And second is prayers. Every Muslim prays five times a day, uh, in the morning, early afternoon, late afternoon, sunset, and late night. 
And every prayer is very small. It's barely five minutes or less, but it requires a ritual purification before we pray. We can pray alone in our home. We can pray in a congregation. We can pray in the mosque. We can pray in a McDonald's on roadside traveling. So there are no restrictions. We can pray anywhere. The third pillar of Islam is charity, which we call zakat. Zakat basically means purification. It also means growing. So the concept is that we need to purify our wealth so it can grow. So every Muslim, every year, is required to give a specific percentage of their wealth to the poor. So all of us, we give 2.5% of our wealth every year to the poor and the needy. That's a charity. The fourth pillar of Islam is fasting. All the Muslims fast once a year during the month of Ramadan, which is the ninth month in the lunar calendar. So an adult Muslim would get up before sunrise at dawn and st start abstaining from all food, drink, and sexual relationships. And then they would continue that abstention till sunset. And then they would do it for the whole month of Ramadan, which is again the ninth month. And the concept of fasting is that it's a month of spiritual purification for Muslims. We want to feel closer to God, but we also want to feel closer to all those people who are less privileged and who don't have enough to eat. So that is for one month. And then the last pillar of Islam is Hajj, which is the annual pilgrimage to Mecca. And all those able Muslims who are physically able and financially able to go to Mecca in Saudi Arabia and visit the house of God and take part in certain rituals who are specifically designed to commemorate the memory of Prophet Abraham and his struggles in life. They are required to do that. So the statement of Shahada, five prayers a day, annual charity, once a year fasting, and the annual pilgrimage. These are the five practices all Muslims must do. Have you had the privilege of going to Mecca? I have been to Mecca twice, but I have not been able to do Hajj yet, the annual pilgrimage yet. And uh, I hope to do that one day. Because even though it's required, I mean, they have the pilgrimage, but if you can't, are there certain practices that occur during that time that somebody would do if they couldn't do the actual pilgrimage? So I did the lesser pilgrimage, which is not the actual pilgrimage and it includes some of the practices of the Hajj. So when we go to Hajj, all Muslims wear just two white garments, which is very important because we want to shed or get rid of all the worldly belongings and attachments. So whether you are a Muslim from Pakistan, whether you're a laborer from Malaysia or you're a king from Saudi Arabia, you all actually look exactly the same. And then they went through Kaaba seven times, and they do uh, some of the practices that Prophet Abraham's wife, Hajar, did while she was tending Prophet Ishmael, the young, uh, young Prophet Ishmael. But um, I haven't been able to do that yet. Annually, almost two million Muslims are doing Hajj nowadays. It's a pretty, um, uh, what should I say, uh, f it's a physically... Um, difficult process because we have so many people in one small part of the world, very small part of the world. It's very expensive to do Hajj, but um, hopefully one day. There are Muslims all around the world 
whether you're in Pakistan or uh, Malaysia or the United States. Um, could you, and I, if I understand correctly, the two major groupings are Sunni and Shia, is that correct? They are the two large denominations. Large denominations, yes. if you like. Could you just briefly tell yeah. a little bit about those? So Muslims, we have almost 1.8 billion Muslims in the world right now, which makes uh, one-fourth of the world population. So it's a large uh, religion, second largest religion, actually. The first is Christianity, but also the fastest growing religion. And Muslims have two major creeds. One is Sunni, which is almost between 75 to 80 percent of Muslims, if not more. And the other is Shia. And th these differences have existed for the last almost 1,300 years. So these are not new creeds. But then among, I am a Sunni Muslim, but then among Sunnis, there are several different school of thoughts and denominations. Like I said before, you will have extreme right-wing Muslims who are very conservative, or you would have very liberal uh, Muslims, very progressive Muslims. So it Muslims come in my opinion in all different colors and traditions mm -hmm. and cultures and customs. And it's really hard to look at them as one monolith group. And same is true for Shia too. It's exactly true for Shia that they also have several sub denominations within their group. But, uh, well, that's how it is for most of the faiths in the world nowadays. Well, and, and building on that then, um, the Medina Institute. Um, and uh, can you talk about the, the work there so and Medina, your role in that? Uh, yes, so I am the chairwoman of Medina Institute, which is um, a new mosque in Little Rock. We opened back in 2016, so it's almost, uh, we'll be finishing our second year in a couple of months. So Medina Institute is a mosque, like any other mosque or Islamic center. Mosque means a, a prayer of, uh, a place of worship for Muslims. So since Muslims worship five times a day, they would come to an Islamic center or mosque five times a day to pray. So that's what a mosque provides. The difference between Medina Institute and other mosques is that we don't want to be a, a five times prayer stop shop. We really want to go back to our basics. Our vision is that, you know, our prophet, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he created the first Muslim community in Medina, which is a city of Saudi Arabia. And he created the first Muslim community, which was based on the principles of education, illumination, inclusion, diversity, and equality. And in that community, Medina community, which was also the first Islamic say, state, Jews, Christians, and Muslims lived very happily with each other. In fact, if you look at the constitution of Medina, constitution of the first Islamic state, I think it's the first interfaith document in the world. And it's a beautiful document which still exists today. So we believe, so firstly, Medina is not just a local mosque. It's a global organization. We have Medina Institutes in Malaysia, in Norway, in Sudan, in South Africa, in England, in Canada. So the vision of Medina is we want to go back to our basics, the teachings of the Prophet, because we believe he was really progressive. He gives us He gave us a community in which we can not only come and pray, we can also... Um, 
play and have fun and learn and build on the inherent potential that God has put in us. So we want to create similar Medinas around the world, similar Islamic centers, which are much more than a place to pray. So that's a um, effort that we did here too. We opened Medina two years ago. We have a budding congregation. Um, people are loving coming to Medina because they can come and be themselves while practicing their religion. They feel welcome, they feel included. There's a lot of focus on learning and education. So when we opened Medina on November 18th, 2016, our first two programs was to open a library and start a Sunday school. So right now my weekend school has almost 70 students in the mosque. So we really want people to learn about their faith while having all the other fun too. So, and of course, um, another thing which is very important to know about Medina is that Medina Institute really empowers women to serve in the management and leadership roles, which we also believe is a model that was given to us by our beloved prophet, peace be upon him. So we have lots of women in our leadership positions all over the world in our organization. Well, Sophia, that's exciting, and um, I appreciate your, your time today. You mentioned 1.8 billion adherents to Islam around the world. In Arkansas, the number of folks who come who uh, share the Muslim faith is growing. Do you have any sense of what those numbers are in Arkansas at the moment? Actually, Steve, it's really hard to tell because the way mosques work, we don't have membership. We don't believe in membership. Um, even the mosque who do membership, uh, not everybody is going to sign up just because of the political condition. They will come and attend the mosque, but they might not become member. But on an um, annual holiday in Little Rock, we can see anywhere up to 2,000 Muslims who will come and pray. That is only Little Rock. That does not include Fort Smith Mosque and Bentonville Mosque and Fayetteville Mosque and Rogers Area Center. So I don't know, but I would say it could be anywhere from three to 4,000 uh, people, and that's a wild guess. Right, right. Well, yeah. we appreciate your time today, and again, some of the connections showing truly how we're more alike than we're different, and thank you for your journey and, and for being here today. Um, Thank you, Sophia. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lovely opportunity. And uh, we want to thank you all for listening to We Are Arkansas. Thank you.